Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Welcome to Window on the West. Thanks thanks for joining us again this week. My name is Jonathan Watson from TheOneRing.com. And I'm here along with Michael Grumbine and Dan Coates. Hey. Uh, We're continuing our journey through the Silmarillion. Today we're starting on uh, the Quenta Silmarillion, actually, and with chapter one of the beginning of days. Uh, But before we get started, hi, guys. It's nice to see you. We actually had a one-week break because of work and other things. We do have lives that uh, are outside of anything... uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, etc. They're not. They're not much, but they're our lives. So. They're our. They're our lives, and they're important to us. At least I'm important to me. You guys. You guys can move along however you want. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, thought, thought I'd. I'll, I'll take the blame. It was my fault for missing <laughs> last week. <laughs> that's okay. Nobody will know. We're trying to get a few ahead. So. Shh. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Cut this yeah. out. Let's let's go on. Let's get started. Uh, and, w- and one of the things we like to do is uh, uh, for at least we like to do for the second time, little section we're calling all that is gold does not glitter, where uh, a couple of us have to identify a Tolkien quote. And this week, Michael is in charge of uh, screwing us over with uh, two <laughs> incorrect quotes and one correct one. So this will be Jonathan's first time. At, at quotes, yeah, this is really um, nerve-wracking. I actually, I did four quotes, so I, I feel I like three incorrect and one correct. So, so uh, I picked themes, and this week's theme is war. So war. there's here's here's four quotes, one of which is from Tolkien, and the other of which other three of which are not about war. So, quote number one. Let's see how good Jonathan is for the first time, and Dan is for uh-huh. the second time. <laughs> Dan got it and, in one and, last and, time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, quote number one. The war is not over, and the one that is has been largely lost. But it is, of course, wrong to fall into such a mood, for wars are always lost, and war always goes on. So that's quote number one. Quote number two. My memories of the last war haunted my dreams for years. Military service, to be plain, includes the threat of every temporal evil, pain and death, isolation from those we love, toil under arbitrary masters, hunger, thirst, and exposure. Quote number three, in war, whichever side may call itself the victor, there are no winners, but all are losers. And quote number four, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. I'm not so, detecting the prose of Tolkien in any of these right now. Which is I, good because that's why I chose the <laughs> I am actually a, a theme that's pretty pretty strong. Pretty certain I, I know which one is right. I'm okay, probably, so then I, I feel like I'm ninety percent certain. We're gonna start with Dan then. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and take a stab at it. I'm gonna say that the second quote is Tolkien. Okay, so the second one quote is my memories of the last war haunted my dreams for years. Military service yes. complete. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that one just okay, because okay. it seems like it's talking about his autobiography there. Okay. All right. And Jonathan? So uh on on the the One Rings Twitter account, which is 
at Torque, T-O-R-C. We do, um, we do quote posts every day. Yeah, I, I knew this was going to provide you with <laughs> This and, is not uh, fair. And I'm pretty sure that one of them was the last one, the true soldier fights, not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. I'm oh, pretty sure. Excellent. I win. All right. Do. So the answer is neither number two nor number four. Wow. So number wow. two, um, chosen by Mr. Coates, was is it is a it C.S. First Lewis one quote. Yes, it is the first one. Okay, that was so, so. It's so the last quote is really so. I was wrong. My ten percent went out. The last quote is really what is a quote from Aragorn, right? Or is it Gandalf? Well, is it? this is why I picked it. So the last quote is actually a G.K. Chesterton quote. Is it Chesterton? And, and you see, dang it. And you see in that quote almost exactly what. See, a maybe I read it in here the other day. <laughs> Gosh, damn it. So screwing me I, up. It is, in fact, a, the same exact theme as my favorite quote from Faramir um, in in um, the Two Towers, and so and so it, it is. It, you know, it's it's along that same that same yeah. theme. But yeah. it, I was shocked to find out because I had heard that that quote was from Tolkien. And it is yeah. not. It is, from, it is from Chester. Huh. Well, you win. Dang it. So, well, which one is it now? <laughs> it's it's the first one. So the first one, the war is not over, and the one that is has largely been lost. But it is, of course, wrong to fall into such a mood. For wars are always lost, and war always goes on. Hmm. You, you, I think you can catch some hints of that in his in the mood of the Lord of the Rings itself, where there's sure. and, and also the Silmarillion, where there, yeah, where for there, sure in the Silmarillion. The stories are of unending wars, essentially, as, as yeah. we're going to find out today. Right. And then the third quote, which neither you chose, is from um, uh, <laughs> just from like uh, it's okay. The failed English prime minister who got um, who kept uh, England out of World War II for too oh, long until uh, peace in our time. Uh, yes. Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain. Thank you. Neville yes. Chamberlain. There yeah. you go. Cool. Well, good job. I, I was I was right after it went down to three. After I, I, I wasn't able to use my lifeline. I guess. That was a tough one. Right. That was really good tough. job. Good. And All right. Maybe Dan next week, if you have the time, you can you can screw All me right. and Michael over then, and I'll find something figure it out. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So let's let's get into uh, let's get into <clears throat> of the beginning of days, uh, and we like to start with Dan's. Big thought. Well, it's like I'm, I'm the newbie here, Ray. I'm reading this for the first time. We're, we're now fully into new material for me. I think I read the Ina Lindale a long time ago. Cool. This is fully fresh, fully new. Uh, my, my big thought, my reaction to this, reading it for the first time, is that you really get a sense that um, Middle Earth is the, is the battleground. It is, it is the place where the, the mm. fight, the war is going to take place. Uh, it's, it's the stage for everything that happened in the song, I think. So you have the two lights and then Melkor comes. It's a lot of themes of light versus darkness. You have the two lights that are there and Melkor comes and he's, he's kind of weaved clouds of darkness around him to come and destroy those lights and destroy everything that the Valar were creating in Middle-earth. Um, then they flee and then now they're set up in Valinor and they make two new lights that are made out of trees. So you have like this constant light versus dark um, mm -hmm. warfare going on. And so there, there's that going on. And there's also a handoff that the, the Valar are, are going to have the children of Iluvatar 
kind of come and take over that war against evil. So I thought that, that was the, the main thing I took away from this chapter. It's like it's it's setting the stage for everything to come. That, yeah. Like um, things are created and Melkor casts them down in every possible way that he can and he destroys things. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. Right. In that very first part, the thing that struck me this time myself, which I hadn't caught before, which was awesome, was um, the quote about before Melkor comes, when um, Yvonne, Yvonne um, has these seeds that she planted that she then, mm-hmm. then burst into bloom, and everyone, and there's this massive feast, and says, and then and this is the, the, the feast at which Melkor takes advantage and goes and destroys the lights while the Valar are having a great time. But the, the quote that I love was, and there upon the Isle of Almer in the great lake was the first dwelling of the Valar when all things were young. And new made green was yet a marvel in the eyes of the maker. And they were mm. long content. So the color green <laughs> hadn't existed until the, the growing things. And they were just, in, they, were, they marveled at it and they were content just at the, I mean, obviously the color green can't be separated from the life of the growing things themselves. So, yeah, yeah. so there's a marvel there, but that, that whole, that whole aspect um, is, is uh, of, of the Valar's fascination with the creation of a color itself is, is awesome. I loved it. I like that. It's, um, it's interesting to think, uh, a co- well, a couple things about that is, um, not only was the new made green, right? So the one thing that struck me about this is that um, you forget that their first, uh, the first thing they built, the first new thing they built was essentially the Great Lake that, uh, that if you use the, uh, the Atlas of Middle-earth has a great illustration. I don't know if you guys took a look at it, but the yep. lake, which has the Isle of, is it Amarin? Am I getting that right? Yes. Uh, yes. The Amarin, Isle of Almarin yes. in the Great Lake. And then, to the north and the south are set the two great towers with the with the lights, two great posts, right? Um, and uh, and it's all symmetrical. Yeah, there you go. Dan, Dan's showing it right here oh. on the video. Uh, it's all symmetrical. And uh, when Melkor comes in, he destroys it, and the symmetry is gone. Right? It's it. I mean, there's I guess there's some symmetry, but there is like it, 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 he creates. He he comes in. He just casts them down. It creates the the, the great lakes. It creates the oceans. Essentially, the first oceans and this is before even it's remade again uh that that time period too is so much longer than we than we understand in here because tolkien was was telling i I was going into more research this time because we're doing it slower and we're you know i'm not reading through it or listening to it as quickly as we would normally and so i was like okay well how long is this period of the lamps the great post the great lamps right uh, and from based on his notes and he kind of changed it back and forth. The general idea is around 15,000 years of our years is how long those lamps were up, which is like four paragraphs here. <laughs> mm. And, uh, and you wonder, you know, what was he thinking about all those things that were going on then? And all we got were these four paragraphs and it feels like we missed so much of it. Mm. But that was what was stuck out to me this time is that the time frame of just the lamps and we get so little of the lamps. Um, 
and what the Valar were doing and what they were, you know, how they were going about building and, and the time period, the 15,000 years. Of course, they have Valian years, which I don't think we have to get into. And yeah. that is a long time, though, because all we get in the Third Age is a few thousand years. Right, right. And I suppose because the focal point of Iluvatar's creation is the, his children within Arda. That is... Then, there that's probably at least you could say that's one of the reasons why not much time is given to the time before that and then everything really focuses on them um it's interesting it was interesting to me that so there's there's kind of two battles in this chapter the first is at the very beginning of the first paragraph right and and we get a different account of tolkis in this regard we, we get the fact that he's the last one to come into arda mm-hmm. um and so there was no Tolkis um, at first with the other Valor, and then he came in and, and sort of single-handedly drove Melkor out, and Melkor broods about that mm-hmm. um, and hates Tolkis in a special way. So, He's like the rowdy Roddy Piper to Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the other way around, the Hulk yeah. Hogan to the rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. So, Am I dating that, myself that, really badly right now? And that and that takes place while everything's being formed, right? There's no, there's no beast, there's no lights. It's just like it's kind of like the forming of the earth by the Valar, and this war breaks out, and Tolkis shows up and drives Melkor away, and then Melkor, when he's driven away, then they start going back to building and making the world. Right. And then they have then they set up the two lights, and then Melkor comes back again. So that's the second battle that we see correct and and he and he destroys the lamps so they set up the two lamps on pillars he destroys that and and then they drive him off again but they cannot finish the job he hides in a tumno um because it and this this was interesting that's his uh that's his stronghold in the north behind the iron mountains yes yes yeah so he actually like raises up these mountains and is able to hide from the side of the valar basically well, and they, yeah, it says in the confusion and the darkness, Melkor escaped, though fear fell on him for above the roaring of the seas. He heard the voice of Manways and mighty wind and the earth trembled beneath the feet of Tolkis. But he came to a tumno ere Tolkis could overtake him and there he lay hid. But it's that next sentence that I, that was interesting. And the valor could not at that time overcome him for the greater part of their strength was needed to restrain the mm-hmm. tumults of the mm-hmm. earth and to save from ruin all that could be saved of their labor. So, so you get this, this picture of them. They're just, straining to keep everything like to keep the world together essentially yeah yeah and and so they can't actually finish the job of defeating him utterly and so he hides in a tumno and um and then what they do is interesting because at that point they raise the wall the polori the this massive mountain wall that has is the largest that has ever been raised as a kind of barrier basically between them between melkor and what they're going to focus on and what they're going to focus on is Valinor, which is a portion of the land of Amun in the west. So they're in this land of Amun, and there's this massive wall of mountain, the Pylori, and then behind that wall is this paradise, essentially, that they build, um, protected from protected from um, any further incursions by Melkor, apparently. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, okay, version two, we understand, like, it's not easy. So now we've <laughs> got to put in some safeguards. And so then they, they bring into being the, the trees and the trees. It's so cool how the tree light, the life in the trees is, is this physical thing. It like drops like the dew and it's, 
It has weight yeah. and it moves around. It's not it's not the way light is now. Um, so it says there there's the light from Telperion, which is the silver, the tree, the dark with dark leaves that emits silver light. Uh, Laureline. Laureline. So one's so gold and one's silver. Right. And and then he goes into some detail about that, how they shine and wax and wane in their light, um, almost like day and night, where Telperion's light is softer. At least that's the implication from what I could pick up. But uh, there's golden light and silver light, and then that's the counting of the years begins yeah. at that point. The counting of days and hours and years hmm. begins at that point. Yeah, like here's here's that here's sort of that uh, it's that line at the end of like, I don't know, the third or fourth section of, uh, of this chapter where he writes, but the light that was spilled from the trees endured long ere it was taken up into the airs or sank down into the earth. It's almost like, like mist, right? It's not, it, it, there's, like you said, there's more density to it. It's, it's not just photons bouncing around. There's, there's actually some sort of heft to it. Uh, and right. he writes, and the dews of Telperion and the rain that fell from Laurelin, Varda hoarded in great vats like shining lakes that were to all the land of the Valar, as well as of water and of light. Thus began the days of the bliss of Alnor. And thus began also the count of time. And thus began also the light, right? The light, which is the Silmarillion, because that's what's important. The Silmarils, the Silmarils contain the light of Telperion, right? Yes. Of, I think of, is it both? Is it just Telperion or Gosh, is it both? This is where we're reading, this is why we're reading, rereading it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we yeah. haven't actually got to that part, I, don't, I think, I don't. yet. These are those little things that like seem so important now, but uh, when you read through it a couple of times, you can't remember it. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's all. It was always it struck me, right? It's magical in a way, right? How do you contain the light of something in a in a gem? And I think we'll get into that's a longer discussion that we can have. But that's because, like you said, I think it's it's more uh, physical than it is just a wavelength. Yeah, the light almost seems liquid, like you were saying, a mist. Yeah, it would it all like you you can contain it in a. A vessel or a glass you know we yeah. see that in the lord of the rings right with the file of galadriel she has right. the water right. that could point which has the light of the star of Irindil in it so there's a hmm. there's a sense in which there's a greater there are great it's almost like greater lights and lesser lights and you can you can contain light like or at least the elves and the valar <clears> can like 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 all kind of water which is really fascinating yeah and it's also in this chapter uh that we get a lot of discussion about uh, a particular Valar, namely, uh, well, I mean, Aule is the one that's more interesting to me. Um, and why is that? Why do you like Aule? Uh, well, because uh, he's he's the builder of things, or he's the artisan, I guess, maybe is the best way to put it, or he's, uh, right, because he, so, uh, and we'll get to this, Aule, I think you might know this, Dan, but he's, he has much to do with the dwarves, mm -hmm. um, but he's also the uh, the Noldor are his favorite. The elves, the Noldor, uh, Fanor, those guys, right? The, those, the, the ones who, um, the, I don't know, what, what, the craftsmen of the elves, maybe? I don't know what's the best way to put that, right? That's, that they, they are his favorite. And so there's this tug between the two of them, but the one Valar speaks for both of them in a way. And I, and I like that sort of push and pull because he's a craftsman and he loved the people who were craftsmen, but he also had essentially created these other people who are also craftsmen. And yet those two can't get along. The elves, the one Valar that is uh, representative of both the Noldor and the Dwarves, essentially the Noldor and the Dwarves just can't get along and, you know, mm. will be fighting. And, and yet the, the Valar that, uh, that they love. So, so, so this is a really interesting theme that we're going to talk about over and over again. So we don't have to delve too deeply into it now. But building on what you're saying there, Jonathan, there's a tension for Tolkien in the 
exposition of, of craft itself. So if you think about it, Aule himself is in tension with Melkor. They both, they both in fact, have skill at craft and in the making of things. And it's, we, we were told that in the previous chapter that Melkor and Aule were very similar to each other in that regard. Um, now Melkor quickly degenerated and he can't, he can only mimic and then destroy and destroy and mimic then ultimately. Mm -hmm. But, but in his, in his non-fallen form, that was what that he and Aule were, were tremendously similar in terms of the way, what they looked at the world and the desire for, for the building of their own things. And, and, you know, we'll find out in later chapters, but you just mentioned the crafting of the, the making of the dwarves and that whole, that whole chapter is very interesting because um, it's almost like Aule almost makes a grave mistake with regard right. to that. So there's there's yeah. this inherent danger in craft. We yeah. see that, of course, very powerfully in the whole of this book, the Silmarillion, like the craft of Fionor, who is the greatest craftsman of all the children of Iluvatar, becomes the, a tragedy for his people. So yeah. so there's a there's a really it's a fa there's a fascinating uh, juxtaposition and tension between the ability to subcreate to craft things from the from the material around and and the danger that that brings it would be curious um to also take look at tolkien's other thoughts about subcreation and i can't remember which essays it's from particularly is it on fairy stories where he talks about it but where yes. he he where he uh <clears throat> you know he discusses more about his thoughts of subcreation and bringing that into the context of uh, how he constructed his world here and the dangers, like you were saying, the dangers and glory and beauty of sub-creation, in a sense. And can you take it too far? Uh, uh, so, at, so at this point, all of the light in all of the world is in Valinor, the blessed realm. And right now, over Middle Earth, it's it's twilight, right? It's, it's just stars <clears throat> that um, Varda put up there. Right, less and, than less than twilight. Right, it's 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 just darkness with the stars. Um, yeah. So one thing I found interesting a little bit later um, is that Yavanna is uh, unwilling to forsake the outer lands. It seems like all the Valar are kind of holed up in Valinor, and they're they're okay with hanging out there, but some of them are still looking east to the Middle Earth that they left behind, and so Yavanna. All the all the things that grow being dear to her, mm -hmm. and she mourns for the works that she had begun in Middle Earth, but Melkor Melkor had marred. And then we also uh, read about Orome being a tamer of beasts who would ride through the unlit forest as a mighty hunter. So he's coming to kill all of Melkor's monsters in this unlit forest. <laughs> and yeah. Yavanna, Yavanna keeps looking back there to the, 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 the to the things that grew there. It's, yeah. it's kind of interesting that they, they still have an eye toward that. And it seems like they have an eye toward that with the, with the thought in the back of their mind that the children of Iluvatar are coming and they need to make sure that Middle Earth is ready right. for them. Like you said in the beginning, it's, it's another instance of them fighting against the darkness almost. Yeah. They're, they're going into the darkness to beat it back a little bit in the ways that they can. Yeah. Right, but only two of them, right? Just but only Yavanna two of them. and right. Orome. Right. Um, and the others, yeah. the other, and, and and maybe this is a point which we can bring up later as well, but did the Valar err in that regard? Um, they they do, as you said, Dan, they do seem to pull themselves back into this 
sort of retreat into the thing that they know they can protect. They, they erect this unbelievably massive wall of mountains and, yeah. and they build this paradise that they know they can protect from Melkor and they leave the rest of the world in darkness. Hmm. And then there's also Olmo where it says that you're um, right. He's, he's still, he's still sending his life giving water to middle earth. Um, that he's right. That, and, and he never hangs out in Valinor either. He only hangs out. He's kind of like Aquaman or whatever. He's, he's always in the water. <laughs> Poseidon maybe is a better. He's Poseidon. <laughs> we can go Poseidon instead of Jason Momoa, but that's all right. right. <laughs> but he, he's also, he's an, he's another Valar that doesn't decide to yeah. just hang out where it's safe. And that, <clears throat> like, if I can bring up this, I, my favorite quote from this chapter, and one of the things I always look at, I think each week is like, what, what is the quote that stuck out to me is, uh, uh, where he writes about Ulmo and he says in the deep places, he gives thought to music, great and terrible. And the echo of that music runs through all the veins of the world in sorrow and in joy. For if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, its springs are in the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. Hmm. Um, and it's one of those pieces of prose that says so much more than just the words, because when you think about, you know, joy, like, Joy here for him, like joy on in the fountains, uh, can only be had if there is, or if there are wells of sorrow, the destruction of Middle Earth, and in the same way, sort of like I don't know, maybe too much bringing this into a personal way, but you know, you can't can't experience true joy unless there's like real sorrow that it's born out of, because you don't know what it is. It's kind of like teaching kids, right? You you don't you don't teach kids to be happy kids. You teach them to be happy adults, and so they go through some sorrow in their youth, but they know what joy truly is. Is what, if they're if they're raised right. in that way. Uh, in those deep wells. I love that quote. There's there's depth to it. And it's said in such a concisely uh, beautiful way. Yeah, It is. And it, and, it, and it taps into that mystery of the oceans, which Tolkien is always coming back to from time to time, where there's just some, there's something powerful and mysterious and dangerous and life-giving about the oceans and, mm -hmm. and fascinating to the, to, to the peoples of Middle-earth. Yeah. yeah, because again, the... As I, as I so pointedly learned that the water is the echo of the music of the Ainur, essentially. And it says that here in the deep places, he gives thought to music, great and terrible. And the echo of that music runs through all the veins of the world. And so the, the sound or the music of creation almost is the water running through the veins of the world. Love that vision. Love that, 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 that what it that shows in my head. Yeah. Dan, did you have any other favorite quotes or, or things that popped out at you besides the yeah, Yavanna, the, Yavanna and Orome and Ulmo being the only ones to to attend to the darkness of Middle Earth. Yeah, um, just the other side of that, I guess, or the just continuing on from that in the next paragraph, Tolkien makes a point of talking about the children of Iluvatar el being elves and men, and how um, the 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 Valar are are kind of handing off the fight to them in a sense. And it says that the Valar are to these kindred rather than elders and their chieftains rather than their masters. Um, so it's just kind of like this idea that like the Valar are not, they're not a Lubatar. They're not, they're not, um, I guess in a sense, they're not a big G God to the, mm -hmm. the children of uh, children of a Lubatar. They're, they're just kind of advisors or they're kind of, they're, they're, they're kindred, I guess, rather than elders as, as how Tolkien puts it. So I thought that was interesting. 
Yeah, don't we see that too in the echo of the wizards? So the, the sentence after what you were saying, Dan, is, yeah. Uh, and if ever in their dealings with elves and men, the Ainur, yeah. and that would include both Valar and Maiar, the Ainur have endeavored to force them when they would not be guided. Seldom has this turned to good, howsoever good the intent. Yeah. So you see, even with the wizards, when the wizards, Maiar, come among the men and elves in Middle-earth, the ones that are successful are the ones that attempt to guide but don't force. And then once they turn to force like Saruman, it doesn't end well. Yeah. Whereas Gandalf is the example of, of the one one who, who it does end well because he's he's a continual guide. Okay. Radagast feels to me like almost a, um, someone, a wizard that was sort of bowed out from the yeah. from the guidance of the the children of Iluvatar um, to to care for the creatures, and so he kind of almost fit into neither category there. But it, that that passage that you quoted is really the beginning of the end of the last page of this chapter, and it is in my mind the most fascinating section of this chapter <clears throat> because it talks about the kind of things that are a mystery even to the Valar, and specifically yeah. it's speaking about the differences between elves and men or Quendi and Atani. I always forget that the men have a name too. Uh, the Atani, right, yeah. The Atani, right. So, and specifically it comes down to, it's like this interlude where, you know, Melkor has wrought this destruction and and this is my commentary, so I, I'm willing to be wrong on this, but my commentary is Melkor wreaks this destruction. Melkor tries to wreak destruction. He starts to succeed at the very first paragraph of this chapter. Then Tolkas comes in and drives him off. Then the Valar make this paradise across the earth. Melkor comes and ruins it again with the lamps and mm -hmm. destroys most of it. So the Valar retreat and they build a small paradise in the west and the rest of the earth is in darkness. And then we have this interlude where it's like, meanwhile, back in the, with Iluvatar. And so we have Iluvatar <laughs> sitting there and, it's, and it, sees, it says literally he sat alone in thought. And he spoke and he said, behold, I love the earth, which shall be a mansion for the Quendi and the Atani but the Quindy shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures. And he goes on to talk about the characteristics of them. So they have, they have, they're immortal, um, and, but they have the greater, they have the greater bliss, he says, but he gives to the Atani a new gift. So there's this fascinating passage that he says about the differences between men and elves, which is not the usual one that people focus on. Usually people focus on the fact that elves can't die, for example, except by violence or when they tire of life. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the fact that they're just they're they're physically and in many other ways superior to men, but it says, but they should have a virtue to shape their life. This is the they being the Atani, the men. So the men should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else, mm. and of their oh. operation. Everything should be in form indeed completed in the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. So Lubitar is saying like the music of the Ainur is like fate to everyone else, including the elves. So the elves are bound with it to the world and they have a fate that's tied to the world. But men have this gift, which is beyond um, an ability to shape, he says, to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world. Um, and then he, the second gift he gives them is the gift of death which is a very interesting one and, and one that's a mystery um, to, to the Ainur. Um, 
And so in the, one of the last pair, uh, sentences, it says, but the sons of men die indeed and leave the world. Therefore, they are called the guests or strangers. Mm -hmm. Death is their fate, the gift of a Lubitar, which as time wears, even the, the powers shall envy. So a fascinating take on death there, right? Which is that it's not just it's not just a bad thing. It's actually a gift from a Lubitar, and they leave the circles of the world. The elves are bound to the world. Even when they die, if they're, they're killed or weary of life, they go to the halls of Mandos, and then they live mm -hmm. with the, the Valar there, um, or at least some of the Valar. And then and the, the Valar themselves, they're bound to being part of the earth too, right? Well, yes, and not by nature. By nature, they're outside the world, but they've chosen to make, you know, participate in the music to craft the world and then guide it. So they are indeed part of the circles of the world. They're not going to, um, they're not going to end when the circles of the world end. But there's this very cool, the very last pair uh, sentences. Yet of old, the Valar declared to the elves in Valinor that men shall join in the second music of the Ainur, whereas Iluvatar has not revealed what he purposes for the elves after the world's end. And Melkor has not discovered it, so so the men Woo, actually have, go men. Yeah, they have this. They have this. Uh, <laughs> this this uh, purpose, which is on the level even of the Ainur, where they they're going to be part of the music, and they, we don't even know if the elves are. So that's mm. it's just really fascinating. It's not your usual take on the comparison between men and elves. You know what I like it that it does beyond beyond the mystery that that is to us, and you know I'm not. I'd, I'd really love to like this is there's so much depth to, depth to this that um, I would have loved to ask Tolkien what like what was going through your head as you thought of the, about like what were the, the mm. differences between elves and men and the Ainur and why why men like what why was this important to you? You know, we can make guesses, but uh, in all my reading, I don't think we we know necessarily. Perhaps it's his experience in, with death in World War One um, <clears throat> or with his parents. Uh, but the. The idea that you know death is a gift is very comforting, and I think that perhaps that that plays a bigger a bigger part in it to him. Right, and there's another passage in which not not in this chapter, but and I can't even remember now the problem with reading all the things like the unfinished tales and such is that I can't I can rarely remember where I read it, but yeah, there's, there's yeah. another place in which they suspect the Ainur suspect that the the souls of men when they leave the circles of the world, actually join Iluvatar. So they've gone to Iluvatar, whereas everyone else is here on Earth. Yeah, I feel like that's, I feel like that's in the Silmarillion. Again, we'll find probably, out, I guess. <laughs> it, does, it, uh, it does hit back on one of the themes we've touched on before on previous chapters of uh, towards the end where it says, but Iluvatar knew that men being set amid the turmoils of the powers of the world would stray often and would not use their gifts in harmony. And he said, these two in their time shall find that all they do redounds at the end only to the glory of my work. So just that that good triumphing over evil and even evil being used for, for good in the end. Yeah. That's, I love That's that. very provocative, uh, it, isn't that. it? Because, because there's only one other being that, Mel that Luvatar said that to, and that's Melkor. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's where... Um... It, where the, the final quote of that paragraph says, for it seems to the elves that men resemble Melkor most of all the Ainur, although he has ever feared, he, Melkor, has ever feared and hated them, even those that served him. So the mystery of men, and he doesn't understand because he doesn't know where they are, what, 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 uh, what, what is at the end of this here, uh, at the end of this chapter, right? that like he hates men, but yet to the elves, men 
resemble Melkor the most, but yet he fears them. It's such a, an interesting distinction between the two or a contrast. Um, yeah, it's really, they really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Wow, short chapter, but a lot to dive into. But before we jump into the next one, uh, I do like to do the uh, if you like Tolkien section here. So if you like Tolkien, uh, one of the things that I have is um, I got this. Gosh, I think it was after the Return of the King came out. It might be published before that. I'm not sure. It's called the Lord of the Rings sketchbook. Uh, nice. Am I getting that right? Right there. Yeah. And what it is, is it's actually um, <clears throat> Alan Lee's sketches not for the films these were done before the films this was for a i think it was a centenary uh on the uh centenary edition of the lord of the rings uh, 100 years after uh tolkien was born uh which had uh, watercolor paintings and other works and these were the sketches he provided to the tolkien estate to get their permission essentially to say i'm, I'm good enough to do that and so he goes through all these all the sketches and so even here right with the argonath that we see like this is his original sketch before you saw the films from Peter Jackson. And it's, it's amazing how much his vision became Peter Jackson's and uh, his artwork and Ted Nasmith and John Howe are always my favorites uh, before the films came out. And I love seeing this vision that is filmless and is just black and white sketches because it sort of sketches wow. out a vision for it without it becoming your vision for it and, and you know i talked earlier about how what i don't like about the films is that once you see them it's hard to imagine frodo looking different or aragorn looking different or uh even acting different in certain ways uh and this here provides a little bit more of that glimpse into somebody else's vision that isn't uh a moving picture on a big screen with loud sounds and the soundtrack so yeah lord, lord of the rings sketchbook by alan lee really good it's still available on amazon i'll put a link in the show notes but yeah it's still oh, available cool. it's like 23 24 bucks it's published uh, 2005, according to this, I think. But you can still get it, so I recommend it. It's pretty cool. It's it's great that you showed a picture of the Argonoth uh, when you're in your example there, Jonathan, because we just read that. I just read Lord of the Rings that section when they're yeah. passing it to my sons, my young sons. Yeah, and they wanted so I showed them a picture from the only one I I knew of. I didn't know of this thing from the movies, just so they could see a still shot of the Argonoth, and they immediately caught like what should have been obvious, which Alan Lee. Yeah. They don't have axes. They're, yeah. they're, they're both, they're, they're supposed to have axes. They're very specifically, yeah. both, they both hold axes. And in the movie, Dude. I mean, it's like, it's CGI. So how hard would it have been? Just that making, that, that was like a huge discussion point in our forums back in, back when, before the two towers came out and those pictures came out. I mean, I love the vision, right? It's actually the poster I have right there. The oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause there uh, like, like the, the enormity of those statues is 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 incredible. Like I, I that's what that's a vision in the films that resembled this and that I really loved. Uh, I love but, it. I love the majesty of it too. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, why not just axes? I guess because swords are swords are cooler and they cut things more easily. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. <clears throat> Be, well, you know, because Aragorn had a sword and they wanted yeah. to show it was Aragorn with the sword and the he was yeah, he right. Was it was Aragorn, that's right. Swords, Aragorn's yeah. ancestors, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but it could have been axes. Come on, like how big of a deal? Of course, they would say how big of a deal. In any case, respect the lore. <laughs> <laughs> respect the written oh, word. Yeah. Yes, right, right. All right, guys. Well, I think we're good. Uh, this maybe went a little bit longer than usual. So, thanks for listening, everybody. What is it next week? We're going of into Aula and Yavanna and the coming of the elves of the coming of the elves. So those two. Right two short chapters. So thanks for listening. And the usual, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, 
We have these on YouTube too. And follow us on Twitter. It's under the Torque username, T-O-R-C. Uh, we'll post there when uh, when things go up and some clips and things like that, hopefully. And, and every day we have a, a quote, of the, quote of the day uh, on Twitter. And we have actually uh, uh, artwork of the day, professional art of the day. So uh, not just like fan art, but actually like John Howe, Alan Lee, Ted Nasmith, some of those bigger artists and some of Tolkien's original we post every day there too. So thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. All Bye right. all. We'll see you. Michael, Dan, and Jonathan want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. Visit us at theonering.com, your source for everything Tolkien, where you can comment on this episode and join the conversation. This is Austin Robertson, bidding you farewell. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. <laughs>